0: I'd like to welcome everybody here. Um, my name's Tim Allen. I'm a, um, a professor in the Department of International uh, Development, and I'm uh, also a co-director of the um, Justice and Security Research Program. Um, and I'm going to be uh, chairing the event this evening. I mean, With us on the panel, we have Mary Caldor, who will be known to um, most of you, I'm sure, who is also a professor in the Department of International Development. Um, she's very well known, of course, for her many books on issues such as uh, human security and on uh, a well-known book on, on, on the nature of war, new wars and old wars. Um, and she's the director of a kind of sister programme um, called Security in Transition. Uh, which is um, a project of the Civil Society and uh, Human Security Unit. Um, Because we're in the same department and because we're working on such similar issues, increasingly we're working together as a single sort of mega research uh, centre. I don't think we're allowed to call it a centre in the school. So I mean these are multiple programmes, you know, coming together and working together. Um, So we're increasingly linking our research programmes together and we're We're both in the kind of early stages of setting up our research agendas. And we have an opportunity tonight to talk about some of these issues in a broad way about the nature of security, um, how security is changing um, in what we're calling in our program those difficult places, those places that defy easy definitions, where they're not really in a state of conventional war, but they're certainly not in a state of conventional peace. And with us on the panel, we have uh, Lakhdar Brahimi, uh, who was Foreign Minister of Algeria, and prior to that, an ambassador to the United Kingdom. Um, he mediated the end of the civil war in Lebanon, and headed the UN missions missions in South Africa, Haiti, and Afghanistan, and Iraq, actually. Um, He chaired an independent panel established by Secretary General Kofi Annan, um, which produced a a report that was endorsed by the uh, uh, Millennium Summit in, in 2000. It's become known as the Brahimi Report that looks at UN peacekeeping operations. Um, It's been a kind of a key document in thinking about how UN peacekeeping uh, might be developed, how it might be um, assessed, how it might be changed moving forward. In many ways, it set the agenda on on those issues, Um, assessing the acute shortcomings in the system in all sorts of ways. Amongst his um, other academic affiliations, he is a, a senior visiting fellow at the London School of Economics. He's also uh, a member of The Elders. I'm sure he won't mind me um, calling him an elder. Um, But it is The Elders with a capital T and a capital E. It's an actual thing, an actual group, a small group of elder statesmen and public figures created in 2007 at the initiative of Nelson Mandela and um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. We also have Javier Solana here with us this evening. He served as the, in the Spanish government and Secretary General of NATO. In 1999, he was appointed the European Union's High Representative um, for Common Foreign and Security Policy, and Secretary General of the Council of the European Union and Secretary General of the Western European Union. He held those positions until uh, 2009. Now, like um, Ambassador Brahimi, he has received numerous prestigious honours and awards, which I'm sure it would embarrass both of them to list. Um, but um, uh, he has had the, uh, the Vision for Europe Award, the Statesman of the Year Award, the Carnegie um, Vatola Peace Prize. The Charlemagne Prize, which sounds slightly ominous actually, and he is the 194th Knight of the Order of the Golden Fleece. Um, And they're both sitting on the advisory board of the security um, in transition project. We also have various other people in the audience who Mary's going to introduce, I think, before she kicks off the discussion. But I just thought I would take the opportunity of introducing um, Alex Duval down here at the front. Wave, Alex, everybody knows where you are, that's right. He's the director of the World Peace Foundation um, at the Flesher School at Tufts University. And before that, he was based at the Social Science Research Council in the United States. And he's been working as a senior advisor to the African Union high level. Um, on uh, Sudan he's also got various gongs he's written lots of books more books than I have actually he's written I think 14 books which I think is more than Mary and me combined I fear um and you know some of them very influential um yeah he's gone he's got an obe um but much more important uh, he's the co-research director of the justice and security research program so um each of our panelists up here will say a few words about issues that they think are of primary importance in terms of thinking about um uh, security issues um, in, in the current world and moving forward. We've been thinking today about where things might be over the next five years, and I'm sure they'll uh, reflect on some of those issues. And then we'll maybe have some contributions um, from the floor. So I'll int- um, turn it over to Mary now. All Shall right. I come up I think. I think maybe... Is, it, is that working? If you bang it, does it work? I does think, that
1: work? I think okay. it's probably OK. I'll stay here. Yeah. I mean, I, I just want to add to what Tim said by saying... How incredibly lucky we are to have this wonderful advisory board and that's why we took this occasion to have a public event so you can hear some of our discussions and it's fantastic to have people like Lactar Brahimi and Javier Solana really helping us think through uh, what we want to do. Uh, We've also got other members of the advisory board and I hope they'll contribute to the discussion Uh, We have down there General Andy Salmon, who's a General in the Royal Marines and is currently at NATO headquarters as the head of their crisis management uh, centre. We have Ivan Veveda from Belgrade who um, is an old colleague of mine but more importantly he played a very important role in Belgrade before and during the war. Then he ran a Trust for de- the Balkan, trust for democracy in the whole of the Balkan region, and now he's vice president of the German Marshall Fund. Then we have Dave Kilcallen here, who is Australian. Uh- <laughs> uh, yeah. But more importantly, he's he's probably the world's greatest counterinsurgency expert. He wrote a wonderful book which I recommend you to read, called The Accidental Guerrilla, but perhaps he's most well-known because he was General Petraeus' advisor on counterinsurgency and in Iraq. Um, And now he teaches at John Hopkins. Is it at John Hopkins? Yeah, it is. At John Hopkins University and runs a company. But anyway, so that... And then behind, we're even luckier. We have... We seem to be very... We have General Klaus... Reinhardt, who was the former NATO commander in uh, Kosovo. And while you may think we have a lot of military people, all our military people are very enlightened military people <laughs> who are thinking differently. And, and Klaus is uh, not only was he former uh, commander in Kosovo, he was president of the Klaus Fitz Society in Germany and remains a, a very serious thinker and mm-hmm. academics. So they'll all join in. Is there anybody else I've forgotten? No, they'll all it's join in. At the end, at the back. Oh, Rudy Title <laughs> at the back from the New York Law School, who's written a book, and I invite you all to her book launch tomorrow at Waterstones uh, called Humanities Law, and she's going to be working with us on transitional justice. So, Now I'm going to. So I just thought we could take this opportunity to think about the issues involved in our research program, but I thought I'd start by telling you about my recent experience on the Army's urban warfare exercise. I was invited to take part in this exercise, Urban Warrior, a month ago, which took place in Southampton. And the scenario for the exercise was this. Southampton was the capital of a country that covered the southwest part of Britain called the Southwest Protectorate. And Southampton was a poor country predominantly Anglican but with a 15 percent Muslim minority. The country to the north of Southampton was Muslim and had invaded Southampton Uh, ostensibly in support of the Muslim minority, but really because Southampton was rich in oil resources. And so the task the army had been set, oh sorry, the leadership of of Southwest Protectorate had invited NATO in to help them expel the invaders. And so the task that the army had set itself, it's a little bit more complicated than I've described, but I won't go into all the details, was how to get rid of the northern invaders. And we all had to stand in a multi-storey car park in the middle of Southampton, discussing how we would take the opposite block of flats where the Muslim forces were entrenched. And I said, would we really do this if Southampton was invaded? Uh, Wouldn't it cause a lot of civilian casualties? And would we really be willing to risk the lives of Southampton citizens? Wouldn't we, by the way, there was also a Muslim insurgency and an Anglican insurgency and a lot of crime as well, (laughs) and a lot of unemployment. So I said, wouldn't what we really would do would be to try to keep them in their lodgement and try to run Southampton in a good way uh, so that people really want to live in our part of Southampton and not in their part of Southampton and undermine them politically. And we had a discussion about this. And the people in the army said, look, we really agree with you, but this is our core task. Our core job is war fighting. And so we need to know how to be able to do it. So even though this scenario might be unrealistic and it might not be actually the way we would really do it, we won't be an army if we don't know how to do these things. And we had lots of discussions about, for instance, logistics, how we would organize the logistics given the IED threat, which was being posed by the Muslim insurgents. And so we discussed all these things. And the reason I tell you the story is because I think that's the, exactly the problem that we're confronting in this research project, which is the centerpiece of the way we think about security is classic old-fashioned warfighting. But actually, the problems of the people of Southampton were very, very different. They were to do with unemployment. They were to do with crime. They were to do with violence from insurgency and we need this is what we call the security gap so the reason we 've all come together is this research program that we've that we've won an award for from the European Research Council and the research program is called security in transition and it's really We call it a multidisciplinary investigation into the security gap. And the security gap is this, that millions of people in the world feel deeply insecure. They risk being killed, raped, robbed, uh, displaced, forced from their homes. Uh, They don't have jobs. They live in poverty. They don't have enough food. They risk disease. They are very vulnerable to natural disasters. And yet, our security capabilities largely consist of Cold War armed forces designed to meet an attack by a foreign enemy. Um, And there's a real mismatch between this, and I think it's getting worse. And so our idea is there has to be a shift in security, and by investigating the security gap, we're going to think about what that transition will involve. And our research programme, which is great, it's for five years, so we have a lot of time to think it through and uh, develop it, is, is in five components which are all, if you like, ways of investigating the security gap. The first component is what we call cultures or narratives It's looking at the dominant ideas about how you do security and the dominant idea and how they differ from uh, both in different cultural contexts, whether it's the American idea of security, the European idea, the Chinese idea, but also both from the top down and the bottom up. How ordinary people, or as they call it in the security and justice program, we call it the end user the person who's supposed to be secure sees it is very, very different from the way it's seen. So we're gonna, that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it, which is a very important component of what we do is rules. I think that what we're doing when we think about the security transition is moving away from the idea that there's a sharp difference between how we do security domestically and how we do it Internationally, we're used to the idea that security domestically is based on a rule of law and there's a system of enforcement and a system of justice. But internationally, we think security depends on um, defense against foreign attack. Internationally, it's about war. But actually, we're moving towards a situation and have been really since the end of the Second World War when how we maintain security internationally is rather more similar to how we maintain security domestically. But that raises lots and lots of questions about the nature of international law, which to a large extent is based on an earlier paradigm. Uh, It's based on an old-fashioned view of war. So a big set of questions is, actually how does law change? How is law an instrument of security? And a very big issue is going to be transitional justice, the whole issue of the ICC war crimes. So rules is a second element. A third element is indicators. How do you actually measure insecurity? Are there measurements? If you read the World Bank report or if you read the human security report, there are lots and lots of measurements of insecurity but actually we increasingly find they don't capture the sort of insecurity we're talking about so a third part of our program is thinking about what kind of indicators would really could provide could supplement our discussion about the ideas with quantitative indicators which could show things like is violence increasing or decreasing is the is there a security gap uh, a fourth component is going to be tools. What are the capabilities that are available uh, what are the resources what are the what's the manpower what's the shift from military to military and civilian what's the changes in the nature of security policemen and so on which we haven't what's the, what are the new technologies required and the final component is going to be cities because I think we think that one of the reasons security is changing so much is precisely because globalization is also associated with dramatic urbanization. And how you do cities, how you do security in cities is often very different. And the Southampton example is very relevant because actually they gave us a whole list of background reading for Southampton of all uh, about urban warfare. And the main message of all traditional... Uh, strategists is don't fight in cities. Always try to go out in a field outside (laughs) rather than in the centre of a city. So these are all the components of what we're studying and what we've been trying to talk about today is how to make all that a concrete reality. I just want to make one last point and then hand over. And that's to say that I think the security gap's widening. I think we could talk about a security crisis that is actually parallel to the economic crisis. It's interesting, I mean, if we'd been in this room a year or two ago, we would have been very preoccupied with the war on terror. Now, somehow, the war on terror seems to have been sidelined, maybe partly for very good reasons, the Arab Spring, for instance. But at the same time, we're absolutely preoccupied with the economic crisis. But I think these two crises are deeply interconnected, and actually we can't solve one without the other. And, I mean, I think they're interconnected in several ways. I mean, just to give, not to give you a whole analysis, but, you know, first of all, in a very obvious sense, it's high levels of military spending that have contributed to global imbalances. Um, We wouldn't actually, I mean, be in quite the debt crisis we are had it not been for the huge American spending on Iraq and Afghanistan. And it's not an accident that this happened. Exactly the same thing happened in 1971 during the Vietnam War when the Americans first left Bretton Woods. So, in an, And just to take Greece, Greece is the highest military spender in Europe as a share of GDP. <laughs> but also, I think the military is so much associated with the idea of the state it's so deeply embedded in the state that change is very difficult at state level Um, and I think that's a second reason why in a way it's a contributor to the economic crisis but you can also argue the opposite is the case the economic crisis is really contributing to deep insecurity it's making things worse all over the place And maybe also you could add, this is just an additional thought, that once you get military spending cuts, instead of focusing on the capabilities that might really solve um, uh, the crisis, you focus on the more symbolic things. So we've got a shift from boots on the ground to drone campaigns and long-distance assassinations, which feels like security maybe in America because lots of Islamists are being killed, but actually is deeply contributing to greater insecurity. So I have this feeling that over the next five years that we're doing this research project, we won't be able, the security crisis is going to get worse and we're going to have to connect our analysis to the economic crisis. And I'll stop there.
2: Great.
0: Um, I think we'll just go from one to the next. I mean, did you want to just sort of?
1: He has, he has had
2: more awards than me. So he had more. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's true. Actually, I, I, I didn't list really? all yours.
0: But you're the hundred. What is the hundred? Oh, I, mm, I, I, what is the knight of the golden fleece teller? I, I don't know. Ron. Where is your golden? <laughs> uh, where is your golden fleece? He's also, I don't know, I don't he
1: know. also is an honorary yeah. professor of LSE. Yeah.
0: Ah, yeah, sure, sure. I am. I'm much
3: more impressed by the gold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, can, I can have another impressive thing to tell you. About. <laughs> Now it is my turn. Yeah, okay. Sure. Now I it's very difficult to to match Mary's speech but I will try to do it. First of all I, I, let me tell you that I'm very pleased, very happy to be part of the board or advisory board of this program. I think this program is going to be a crucial program to understand part of the problem that we have today not only the classical problem of security but the new problems that related to security the new wider definition of security that you know now it is true as Marie has said that we are in a, in a transition a, probably in a transition of a period that started uh, in 1989 probably and we have uh, not quite finished and in fact uh, we are in a second wave of that process that started at the end of the Berlin Wall I think that we have a crisis uh, or a transition in security. We have a transition in the economy, the economy, what we call a crisis is a transition from going to a paradigm pre- prior to this period of time, and we don't know really where we're going to end up. The world of today is defined by a tremendous transfer of power, transfer of power from the, what we call the, the Atlantic uh, world uh, to the Pacific world. And we don't know still how it's going to be the end of this uh, fantastic transfer of power which is taking place. This means that um, everything is changing, and uh, as Mary has said, the security component is also changing. Uh, She has mentioned two or three issues. Let me put uh, my emphasis on other two, or one she has mentioned, which is very, very important. The loss of war and the loss of peace. I think the laws of war have to change. We are still applying laws which are not applicable uh, to the conflict that we have today. The war of today is not a war between the states. It's a war amongst the people, uh, using the title of a famous book by General Rupert Smith. And it's very different than the classical war. And still we're applying laws which are not compatible with the realities of today. So to really look into that, as the program is going to do, I think is absolutely fundamental. I think that, uh, as Murray has said, uh, we have a war that is being done uh, on the ground of Pakistan or on the ground in Afghanistan, but is conducted from Florida in the United States. The drones which are hiding or fighting in Pakistan, the control of that drone is not in Pakistan or in Afghanistan, it's in Florida, which is really a war which is very particular compared to the wars of the past. A world that has casualties only on one side, which is really very breaks all the rules of the, of the of the classical classical world, therefore, we have a lot of things that we have to look to look with an open mind to begin to think or to begin to continue thinking out of the box on these issues which are related to security. This program uh, takes uh, it's a continuation, in a way, allow me to say that, Marie, on the human security program that Mary has uh, has uh, directed for a long time. Remember what is the meaning of that human security is to put a human being at the center of any conflict and the solution of a conflict. It's not the state who has to be supported, but it's the human being which is behind, which is really have to be supported. That has changed the thinking of... of of conflict and the thinking of, of solving many of the problems that we have today, and I think that uh, we have to remember how that started, and this is in a way a continuation of that, uh, of that, uh, of that program being more sophisticated and wider, and it's going to last five years. So we have in front of, our, of us five years to really uh, follow the events of the, of the international what is international community, on the issues uh, on the matters that uh, Mary has mentioned. Security, justice, law, etc. Now, let me um, think a little bit what could be the the main problems or the main issues in which we have to think if we look ahead in five years from today. Some of the things which you are living today will continue. We will have to continue probably with the problems of Pakistan. Afghanistan will be a different situation. The Americans have left, but it will continue with some uncertainties. We will have to see what happens in the Mediterranean, what happens in the countries which are going through elections in the coming days. Tunisia has had elections already. Morocco will have elections this month. Egypt will have elections this month. And uh, it will have elections uh, again before the five years are over. So we have really something very important to take place there that may have consequences on the issues we are talking today. In five years, probably will have something happening in, in the relations of the, with, we will have with Iran in five years. Maybe the situation will be stable and it will be a solution to the question of the nuclear proliferation, maybe not. And that is going to be something which is going to be on the agenda in the coming five years practically without any doubt. In Africa, we will continue to have uh, problems, no doubt about that. The in the next five years we'll have a fantastic movement towards urbanization in Africa which brings back the question of security in cities and uh, there will be a very very fundamental issue in Africa the problem, the problem of uh, urbanization and let me also say that uh, if we look at Latin America for instance just to cover the whole uh, of the world I mean, look at Mexico the number of victims in Mexico relates to drug probably are higher than to any of the conflicts that we have in the world, which we call military. And therefore, it's something that makes us think also, what is the other elements that produce dramas in the world, catastrophes in the world, which is drugs, for instance. So we have to look into all these issues uh, because are part of the security in the wider sense of the, of the world. Now, to complicate more the issues, we don't have only states, but we have non-state actors which are very, very, very important. I mean, I mentioned drugs. Drugs are not states. not a state, but just non-state actors that have global influence, which is really something new. In the globalized world, the non-state actors have sometimes more weight than actors which are states. So these type of things are the issues that we have to look, and uh, I hope very much that by by the time that we finish, we have a better world and we have a better solution to the problems of the world. We are going to accompany the process year by year. We will present something we hope rather finish by the middle of the period, two years and a half, so that we can really follow the second part of the the program already with a big examination of what has happened in the first two years and a half. And again, I finish here because uh, if not we will not have the opportunity for you to to speak if you wish, to to tell you that I'm very very happy very pleased uh, to be able to participate uh, in this program. I have been talking I mean working with Marine in previous uh, uh, programs, but I think this is going to be quite an important one, interdisciplinary, broad five years we have in front of us. So very happy to be here with you. And with uh, the team which is uh, running this talk. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very
3: much.
2: Thank you very much indeed. Um, Tim, you know, when you speak about the elders, um, Dennis Hilly, when he was called you know, more and more often, uh, you are an elder statesman, he says, what you mean is that I am old and no more a statesman. <laughs> Uh, I think that's what we are in the elders, but we like. (laughs) Um, It's all right right. for us. The other thing about this fascinating uh, thing you've done in Southampton, I've been thinking how they worked this out. Um, Which is the country that has 15% of Muslims who are ruling the country or something? Maybe Israel is going to be that, and Lebanon is going to invade them. (laughs) But Lebanon is not Muslim. This is so. It's very complicated. I haven't worked it out. Maybe you can help me later <laughs> on work that out. Um, you know, uh, like Javier, I'm I'm deeply honored and extremely happy to be uh, you know a little part of uh, this project. And the papers that uh, have been prepared are, are are really very very exciting, and and. Encouraging. Um, for me, uh, what is you know, what I found very very exciting is that you are touching on problems that are troubling me and have been troubling me very very much these last few years. We we live in a kind of Orwellian world. There is double speak. You know, peace is war, war is peace, and, and so on. And also, uh, you know. If somebody read our literature, I think they will say that uh, since 1945 we've been moving uh, forward uh, all the time and making very, very good progress, that we have a much better world. Uh, It's not uh, the jungle that we had uh, before 1945. We have now responsibility to protect. We have uh, you know, a, a, a court, an international court. We've had special courts. So you, know, you, you look at this and you think that you know, this is great, we are making progress. But then you take a closer look and you see that uh, the people who uh, are implementing the uh, so-called responsibility to protect, uh, have a lot to answer for, and perhaps you know, they, you know we, we should lo- take a look at that. Uh, when you, when you speak about the responsibility to protect, you speak about Sudan, you speak now about Libya. Uh, why not about Iraq? Why not about Palestine? So you know, this is this is troubling me very very much, uh, because the kind of world we are constructing. Uh, you know, leads people to be very cynical. That uh, th- the richest, the smartest, the most powerful—they uh, don't mean what they say. So, what kind of world are you are, are, are we creating? What kind of an uh, in, post post eighty uh, nine? Uh, uh, All right, the the Cold War is finished. The problem that we had. Was that you know the world was divided? Now we have a united world, but where are we really? Where are we really? Uh, so I think this this uh, these studies you are making are asking these very very difficult questions, and hopefully you come up with answers. And that you know more important than the answers you come up with, some people will pay attention. Uh, somebody will pay attention and 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 do something about it. Um, I think, you know, this morning when we were, I think I have spoken about uh, about the responsibility to protect. Uh, uh, Gareth Evans and Mohammed Sahnoun you know, were very smart to come up with this instead of a uh, humanitarian intervention. Uh, but when you look closer at what it is, it is really a humanitarian intervention. Uh, uh, it, it is uh, it's not what has been adopted. What has been adopted by, by, the, by, by the General Assembly is, is really uh, what exists in the charter, uh, you know, slightly uh, amended. The, the big, big problem is that uh, uh, the people who are, you know, when you speak of the responsibility to protect, who is responsible? Who takes the decision to protect? <coughs> Who decides that there is a case for protection? It is clearly those who can protect. Those who need protection, you know, I don't think we have been asking them for, for, for their opinion very much. So, uh, I, you know, as you say, you know, it has been some years that I have been saying that you know, it's much better if we spoke of the right to be protected. Then you will be talking about you know, of people who come and say, you I need protection, and you decide whether you go or give them that protection or not. Some of the Syrians are saying exactly that now. You've gone to Libya uh, because you thought that the Libyans needed protection, that's, that's, that's very good. Uh, we need protection too, and nobody is interested uh, to give them protection. I'm not saying it was right or wrong to go to Libya and therefore it's right or wrong to, to go to, 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 to Syria. But I think if we had a discussion with the Syrians how much protection they need and what kind of protection can be given to them and who is going to give them this protection, I think we would be in a better situation. Also about Libya, uh, uh, you know, I think there is professor, I'm sorry, forgot his name. He worked for the UN actually, was it Colombia? Who wrote a very long article saying that uh, that resolution uh, 1973 is it? It's mm-hmm. 1973. Is 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 not legal? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, you know there is a very big question mark. You know, th- this is you know I mean, don't, don't don't get me wrong. Um, <laughs> this is just both we are speaking about Libya, just like we spoke about Iraq. Uh, to say that uh, the war on Iraq was wrong does not mean you're saying that uh, Qaddafi that uh, Saddam was a great man. So to ask questions about what happened in Libya doesn't mean that uh, Qaddafi was a great man. I think uh, Qaddafi was. Uh, I think he didn't do much good to his people at all uh, in those 42 years. Uh, but you know the the thing you know again that what uh, what bothers me also is that. Uh, these beautiful uh, principles, new laws, new ideas about protection, about human rights and so on are implemented by people who, who say publicly, "We don't want this for us." I and mean, look at the Security Council now, the people who voted this uh, resolution19 for the, uh, America, China, uh, Russia, India. They are not, uh, you know, they, 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 they will not accept this to be applied to them. And the Americans, as far as, uh, as, as the international court is concerned, they have got 100 plus countries, including the Britain and most, I think, European countries, who signed a bilateral agreement with the Americans that, uh, you know, this court will not concern your, your nationals. I I've all you know the little I knew about uh, law is you know, the first principle is universality. Uh, law cannot be applied to some and not to, to, to others. but these are the kinds of law that we are doing. So if you can really come up with a few ideas and make sure that people read them and also do something about them, we'll be very grateful. To you. Thanks
0: very much. Uh, There's something like some sort of secret code I'm supposed to have said at the beginning, which is hashtag LSCERC, which apparently does mean something to some people in the room.